Hey, this is Madhu and Abhi from Inspiring Ideas Podcast. Finished a classy episode with Rishi Desai, who was the MasterChef sensation and who's one of the 16 experts in the world on cyber physical systems on how humans and computers will interact in future. Rishi, why do you think people should tune into this episode? Well, a bullet train has arrived on the station. The destination uh, only takes about 30 minutes of travel time. And along that journey, you're going to listen to food, artificial intelligence, polymer chemistry, anthropology, patent examination, potatoes, and MasterChef Australia. So join in to the episode. Woohoo! Fantastic. Thanks, Rishi. Hi, I'm Abhinav. I'm Madhu. Welcome to the Inspiring Idea Podcast. We interview people from across the world and share their life stories and success formulas with our audience. We hope this will inspire you to achieve your dreams. So, let's get the show started. Our guest today is an applied cybernetics practitioner ensuring ethical, responsible and assured application of artificial intelligence. He also holds a senior leadership position with IP Australia. He's got another special talent, which he was able to showcase through his culinary skills in MasterChef Australia a few years ago, and he also made it to the top five. Please welcome Rishi Desai. Welcome to the show, Rishi. Thank you, Abhi. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Good to have you on our show. Rishi, in next 30 minutes, we will explore your life journey and deep dive into the key moments which contributed to who you are today. So let's get the show started. Rishi, Albert Einstein said, I have no special talent. I am only passionately curious. It is a powerful statement from one of the world's greatest inventors. You have been very curious all through. Tell us about your life journey. Um, it's a very daunting thing that you're quoting Albert Einstein before I begin. Uh, so, but I, I am, I'm, I'm humbly going to say that I'm not in that caliber, but in saying that I come from a family of uh, doctors. Uh, so my grandfather, my father, my uncle, everybody has been a doctor in the fair household. And I'm the only um, ugly duckling who didn't choose medicine as the field. Uh, ended up doing polymer engineering from uh, Maharashtra Institute of Technology in Pune. Uh, and then from there, I moved on to do my master's in material science and engineering in Rochester, New York in the US. Um, it was just after 9-11, so it was really difficult to get, uh, for an immigrant to get a job in America. So I decided to come back to India again in 2005 and started working for General Electric uh, in Bangalore uh, in their IP division. So that's where my IP journey started. So I started working as a patent analyst with, uh, with General Electric, um, looking at their applied chemistry area uh, and trying to file patents for GE. <clears throat> um, Obviously wanted to always explore um, other, uh, other countries, so decided to apply for a job with RP Australia back in 2007. Uh, they were advertising patent examiners uh, to come and join them, uh, especially during the mining boom because they weren't getting any people within Australia to join, uh, come and work in Canberra. So that's how I ended up in Canberra and with IP Australia. And since, with, uh, or since 2008, been with IPA, uh, it's almost coming up to 13 years, uh, worked in very different positions, including uh, patents, including finance, uh, doing budgets for the agency. And now I am a assistant general manager in a trademark and design. So I sort of got the whole IP perspective uh, now from patents, trademarks, designs, and PBR. So that's what we do at IPA. Um, 
And in 2013, decided to suddenly change course. I've always been passionate about food, cooking uh, since I was five years old. My mother has a food business back in Kolhapur, India. Uh, and uh, since uh, as a child, I've always seen her cooking wonderful things. So really picked up that passion um, and decided to put my hand up uh, for MasterChef Australia. So that was the season five of MasterChef. Um, ended up in Melbourne for six months, uh, locked up in a house with 24 other contestants um, and living a life in a bubble because uh, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to uh, disclose anything until the entire show is being aired on television. Took us six months to film that. I uh, ended up being fourth in the competition. So went through almost all 65 episodes. It was a really wonderful experience. And we can talk about that later. Uh, but a couple of things that I did in between was uh, really passionate about the indigenous knowledge in Australia and really passionate about the Aboriginal culture of Australia. Um, and decided to go on a six-month secondment with uh, uh, Jawan, which is, Jawan is an organization that works across public and private sector and places um, uh, expertise like uh, uh, people expertise into indigenous organizations. So I worked on a project at La Perouse in Sydney uh, with uh, Gujaga um, Child Care Center. So they were looking to uh, see if they can teach their uh, Aboriginal language, which is Darawal language in, in Sydney. So they're looking to teach that language to their kids. So trying mm -hmm. to find them if they can get their registered training organization certificates. So that did that for six months, really wonderful experience. Um, and last year, um, I was thinking about um, doing further studies. I mean, I've been uh, working in my field for 20 years. So I decided that it was time for me to reskill myself and, and do the next 20 years of my life in a different field altogether. Um, really passionate about AI and how AI is going to play a massive role in our and our children's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and wanted to make sure that the use of AI and the applications of AI are ethical, are um, unbiased, um, and are effective for everyone in the community, not just the, the, the privileged ones and not just the ones who um, are technologically savvy. So that's how essentially I've come across for the last, I don't know, uh, 20 odd years in my uh, professional career. Man, I should say that the last two, three minutes have been, it's just like go, going back to India and listening to 100,000 Wala, um, like a Diwali <laughs> festival. That's so amazing to hear, uh, to be honest. Uh, just Thank want to you. give a breather to the audience and uh, you have done amazing. Um, I just wanted to really dive deep into some of these aspects and I just wanted to start with your uh, MasterChef journey. So tell us about your experience of get, getting selected and making it to the top four. That should have been really amazing. It was, it was a really wonderful journey. Um, I mean, I, I, apart from cooking, I enjoyed my time on, with the contestants, with the judges. Just doing a TV show was absolutely wonderful. Uh, completely different experience to anything you would, uh, you would know um, in, in the normal world. And, and I want to say normal world, it is reality television, right? It's, it's like you are in a bubble. You don't, you don't know what's happening outside that bubble. You don't care for those six months what's happening outside that bubble. You can use phones or, or even phones and internet are not allowed. Nothing is allowed. So no phones <laughs> are allowed. You, you, your wallet's taken away. Your passport's taken wow. away. Um, you are locked up in a house with 24 other people. Uh, you only get to call your family once a week for 10 minutes, and even the calls are monitored. Uh, wow. You only get to visit uh, your family once a month for an afternoon. So I used to fly from Melbourne to Canberra on a Sunday morning, have lunch with family, and fly back in the afternoon, fly back to Melbourne. So it used to be really tight to run ship. Because it's important for them because 
they have, I mean, back then they had a budget of $45 million. And uh, if anything does come out of the contestants and if it gets disclosed before the show is actually aired, that True. money is almost wasted. So um, it is really tight run because of that reason. There are lots of commercial commitments they have to make sure that they abide by. So it was a wonderful journey. Um, the initial journey was really hard because you have no idea what the expectations are. You have no idea mm-hmm. what the hell you're doing in the air. Um, and because there are 24 contestants, uh, the filming starts initially, the filming starts about 4 a.m. in the morning um, and finishes about 10 p.m. at night. So there's a massive, massive day. And, there's a, and they set the expectations. They tell you that there's going to be a lot of starting and stopping. So you, you, you literally rush, rush, rush for 10 minutes and then you wait for a couple of hours. And that's how literally the filming works because the, uh, you got to understand the cameras have to be reset. There are different angles they got to film. So just the drive-in shots into the kitchen in, in the cars that we used to have, those drive-in shots, that, that clip plays, uh, plays on television for what, five, 10 seconds yes. for us to drive in. It took us three hours to do the driving shot, just that. So yeah. you have to understand how much effort that goes into making a great show like MasterChef. Because, and that's why it seems really nice on television because it does, you put in a lot of effort to make that happen. In terms of food, um, really amazing to work with uh, great chefs like obviously Gary and, and George were there. Uh, Matt's a wonderful character as well. Um, he's really funny and jovial. Um, had an opportunity and privilege to work with Heston for a, yeah. for a week. Heston Blumenthal, they were just mind-blowing. Um, Curtis Stone was there. Maggie Bay was there. All these wonderful chefs that you'd see on television, worked with them, learned so much from them. Uh, that is an incredible amount of information that just goes into your head for six months. And when you have six months uh, dedicated to a, a topic of your passion, uh, it just makes life wonderful because that's what you think about. You think about food, you, you, you sleep food, you walk food, you eat food, uh, you work food. You're constantly in that environment. So has been a really wonderful experience. And, and um, I, I want a qu- quick example of how a typical day I, on, the, um, uh, on filming happens. You wake mm-hmm. up in the morning at four o'clock, the cameras in, are in your face. Uh, you get ready, get into the bus, get to the location. Uh, you start cooking. You start basically the filming process, and you, it's it's physically and emotionally tiring. Physically because you are standing and you are constantly for 12, 13 hours a day. But emotionally tiring because you go through lots of different emotions in a day. You are anxious in the morning because you don't know what's going to happen during the day. Uh, when you do realize that what is uh, what the challenge is, you panic because you have no idea how you're going to make it happen. Uh, and once you start cooking, you are stressed because you are running against time. Uh, so that's a really important uh, emotion that goes through your mind. And once you're done cooking, you relieve because, oh, you're done now. Uh, but then again, you're anxious. So you go back again. The anxiety goes up because now the judges are going to taste your food. And while they're tasting your food, you're panicking. Is, is it because you're looking at their faces and you're looking at the expressions and you go, is they, are they liking it, not liking it? What, what's happening here? And then either you're relieved because they've robbed your yep. food mm-hmm. or you just panic because the next day you are in elimination. So these <laughs> sorts of emotions you go through in a day and it's really tiring and taxing, but you enjoy it. Absolutely. It's interesting, uh, Rishi, like I met uh, Sashi last year, uh, the MasterChef winner, uh, and he was resonating the same feelings and he went through more or less the same experience that you spoke about. Do you reckon like MasterChef was kind of a major turning point in your life? 
Um, yes, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I've always been a bit uh, quietly confident with, with my capabilities, but one of those things is uh, when you go on television and you actually display it to people and when people come and tell you that they loved you watching you, they have enjoyed watching you, they think you're amazing, you sort of build that confidence a bit more. I'm not saying I'm overconfident, but you, it sort of gives you that confidence that, yes, you can do things. So I've since then don't mind putting myself in precarious situations where I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And that's really important, especially in my job and what I did last year with Rea as well. Um, putting myself in situations which are uncertain, um, which, are, which require you to be resilient, require you to learn a lot of things. I don't mind doing that because I know how to handle myself and I know how to handle the emotions. So that's sort of one of the tangible capabilities or skills that I gained from MasterChef apart from food. Awesome. That's a great story on your cooking journey, Rishi. Now, talking about your experience getting into patent subject matter and progressing into taking a leadership position in Australian government, uh, let us explore about your 12 plus years of journey in this space. So as I said, um, I applied for a job in Australia with IP Australia when I was in Bangalore. So that, was, that journey began in Bangalore. Uh, luckily, I was one of the very few lucky people who get to come to Australia with a job a, a letter in their hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, and I came into Canberra straight away, started as a patent, trainee patent examiner, um, and then the, went through training and became a patent examiner in about a year's time. Uh, but I've always... I wanted to, I always challenge, I like to challenge myself because I don't, I don't sit in one position pretty comfortably for a long period of time. If I know on a Monday morning how exactly my week's going to pan out, um, I, I, I decide at that point in time, I have to change role. So for me, that is the bar that I set myself that I don't like to have um, regularity in my life. Uh, so every two years or so, I change, I have changed role with IP Australia. So the first couple of years, I was a patent examiner. Mm-hmm. And then the next couple of years, I worked as the executive officer for the general manager of patents. Uh, and that, that sort of uh, provided me with an amazing amount of uh, exposure to what happens at the senior leadership level and how the operation of an, of an IP agency uh, works um, and how budgets work, how finance works, how people management works, how recruitment and workforce strategy works. So it gave me a lot of exposure to that. Um, after that, I decided to put my hand up for a leadership position, um, a middle management leadership position back in mm-hmm. patent examination. Uh, luckily for me, I got the position and started managing about five to six staff, five to six patent examiners under me. So looking after their quality of work, looking after their customer delivery um, and training them as well, obviously. And then I went on MasterChef for six months. Uh, in, in, during that sort of break, I went on MasterChef, came back, uh, and luckily there was an opening for a director's role. So this was looking after an entire section of patent examination. So mm-hmm. about 25, 30 people in a section of patent examiners. Um, so looking after them. So luckily, again, got the opportunity to uh, apply for that job and got selected and be, uh, became a director of an applied chemistry patent examination section. Um, two years down the track, I thought, oh, this is, I've got to change again because I know exactly how the, the, the week's going to pan out. So I uh, decided to throw my hat uh, in for a job in finance, uh, looking mm-hmm. after budgets, looking after performance, looking after compliance for IP Australia. Obviously, as a government agency, you have lots of different regulations and acts that you have to comply with. Um, so did that job, worked for the CFO uh, for IP Australia, uh, picked up a lot of financial compliance and government knowledge. Um, writing lots of different ministerials was one of those key things that I picked up as well. The language is very different to you write in a normal uh, letter or a normal uh, application. 
Um, and two years down the track, an opportunity opened up in trademarks. Again, uh, another step up from where I was in finance uh, to be, be an assistant general manager. So um, it's, it's sort of like a two-year span that I, um, I changed my role. And now I've been in trademark for three years. Mm -hmm. uh, mind you, one, one of those years is, was I spent in ANU. So literally, potentially just two years. So I've decided to change my role again. Oh, okay. um, luckily, gotten uh, last week, in fact, got an opportunity to apply for an acting position as the general manager of Trademark. Um, and I'll be acting general manager starting January. So um, Congratulations uh, on that. So thank you. So this is leading 240 staff. It's a massive role. Awesome. I'm another amazing story, man. So you've been uh, kicking goals, to be honest, you know, and every two <laughs> years and putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And that's what we are doing ourselves. You know, every Saturday and Sunday, we spend a lot of time researching and doing podcasting. And that's how we, we have to change the status quo. Otherwise, we will be stuck in one place and without learning as such. Yeah, exactly. People think about change and people think about uh, uh, change is really uncertain. Change is really scary. But if you don't change, if you stay in one place, you're actually going backwards because people around you are moving forward. Um, so you have to con continually change yourself, continually change way what you do. And, um, and, and it's, look, it's one of those things, right? You, you put yourself in a situation which you are not sure how it's going to pan out, but what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You fail a couple of times and you get up again and you go. So it's, uh, people have capabilities. Everybody has inherent capabilities. It's just that they don't get to demonstrate those. So I think people need to put themselves in a, um, in a uncomfortable situation every now and then. That's a gold nugget, buddy. Thank you so much. And having seen the patent side from an IP Australia standpoint, so what's in it for the customer? So is, let's say if I want to uh, register a patent myself and I've got something, how do I go about it? So can you paint a, a customer journey for us? Sure. Um, so um, Australia is really lucky to have really great inventions that come from Australia. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about inventions uh, like the Hills Hoist um, uh, or clothes dryer that you have in your backyard, uh, that's an Australian invention. The Victor Lawnmower is an Australian invention. Um, uh, then you think about things like our flight data recorders and, and black box recorders, Australian invention. Uh, Wi-Fi Wi was invented by CSIRO in Canberra, so wow. it's an Australian yeah. invention. Uh, and the, the last one I'll talk about is polymer banknotes. The, the banknotes we have is an Australian invention. So we've been lucky to have some amazing inventions in Australia. And again, um, all the inventions go back to an IP system. Um, most of the inventions, I should say, go back to the IP system. So what happens as an inventor is if, let's say, you are an inventor in the backyard, uh, you have just invented an idea, you have just come up with an idea and you, are, you have a tangible outcome from that idea, what you can do is apply for what we call a provisional patent. Provisional patent doesn't give you anything except a firm flag in the ground. It shows the world that you are the invention, inventor of this particular idea. Now, at that stage, you don't have to have an absolute exact understanding of that idea. So you have about one year from the provisional patent application date to the actual patent application date to refine your idea or refine your invention. Once you have that, what you do is apply for a patent. Now that's a bit of a technical process. Most of the um, ideas in Australia are, are patented through an IP attorney mm -hmm. um, and they will help you guide um, how you draft a claim. What well, claim gives you a monopoly. So claim sort of gives you a uh, defined monopoly to, which to practice your idea or practice your invention and commercialize your invention. So you draft a claim and it goes through an examination process. Mm -hmm. So it could take up to three to three and a half years from the initial idea inception to the examination process because 
there are lots of hurdles you have to, uh, not hurdles, but there are lots of formalities you have to go through. Um, at about three and a half years, the patent examiner picks up your application uh, and then they look at how novel it is, which is how new the idea is and how inventive or obvious your idea is. And if they think it's novel and if they think it isn't obvious, and there are a couple of other uh, legislative requirements, but if they think those two critical criteria are met, uh, they will uh, uh, accept your patent and accept your claim, which is your monopoly. And if you accept a claim, then you just pay a little small, small fee of acceptance. And then within a certain time frame, you get a grant, which gives you a, a absolute monopoly to, do, uh, to exploit your idea and commercialize your idea for 20 years from the date of provisional application. So you have 20 years uh, protection with patents. That's very interesting. Uh, Rishi, I'm keen to know your views about how patent and its relationship with uh, driving innovation. Um, uh, not just patents, but if you think about all the four IP rights we have in IP Australia, we've got patents, designs, trademarks, and plant breeders rights. All mm -hmm. four are a key pillar for, in, for economic growth and jobs. If you think about trademark, for example, uh, all the businesses who operate small and medium businesses who are struggling right now through COVID, uh, unfortunately, and we are helping out the, uh, uh, those businesses at IP Australia. But if you think about them, for them to have a trademark for their goods and service would be a critical component of their business because uh, that gives you certainty, that gives you quality, that gives you assurance that you mm -hmm. are buying it from the person who actually has a quality product or a quality service to deliver. Uh, think about uh, things like we think you, you see on, on, on uh, supermarket shelves. Uh, you pick up an item that you have tried and tested because you've, you've used it before. Uh, it could be a canned tomatoes. It could be a tomato sauce. It could be anything from, from the supermarket. Yeah. You pick up an item because you see that brand name. And that brand name is critical for the business because that, gives, that assures you that the quality and, and the certification that goes through. So that is a trademark for us. So that, that gives uh, a, a business um, a lot of economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. with, with patents, again, it's a massive um, economic pillar because I, I, for a patent, if you, if you do get a patent, um, you can exploit it for 20 years and nobody can copy it and nobody can actually use your idea. So think about Wi-Fi. When CSR invented Wi-Fi, um, they have 20 years monopoly. They had 20 years monopoly. I think the patent is now expired. But uh, they had 20 years monopoly to monopolize Wi-Fi. And I think there was a case in Australia which went to the high court or federal court. I don't remember which one it was, but it went to high court, I think. Um, and uh, it, it ended up being an infringement of the Wi-Fi patent uh, by someone um, in America and in Australia. And the high court paid a $273 million fine. Uh, it, mm. it, it gave $270 million fine to the companies uh, using Wi-Fi um, Although they didn't have a patent, so mm -hmm. CSRO got a massive boost in their um, in their coffers with uh, with that sort of fine. So it it does create a lot of economic advantage for the companies who apply for patents. And same thing with designs and plant breeders' rights. All the vegetables you buy these days, um, most of them uh, are drought resistant um, because Australia is a drought ridden country, mm -hmm. um, and those rights are and and those plants and those vegetables have have been. Uh, the, the farmers have put in a lot of research into that to make it drought resistant and, and we protect that in PBR. All right, that's, that's really fantastic. Rishi, uh, in your introduction, you said that you recently completed a master's course in, from 3AI uh, Institute, which is one of the very prestigious uh, institutes. 
can you give us more information about what 3AI is all about and what made you do this particular course? So I'll provide a bit of context as to why I got in, interested in AI. I've got nothing, yeah. I, before I think 2015, I had no clue about AI. I mean, I know AI existed because we watched Terminator and see that's what's going to happen to you. <laughs> um, but apart from that, <laughs> Apart from that, I had no interest, but IPS Trail is, is really on the um, forefront of using technology to help our customers. So we have lots of AI applications we use within IP Australia to help our customers, uh, especially in trademark space. So I sort of got into that uh, uh, thinking about how AI is playing a massive role in, in our society and it will play a massive role in future. Um, and I sort of thought, not in IP Australia, but I saw uh, a few examples of um, a wrong application of AI. You use AI just because it exists. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, uh, that was something that I didn't um, agree with. Um, for me, a uh, solution looking for a problem is always disastrous. You must identify your problem first, and then you can go and find a solution. And if AI is the best solution for that problem, absolutely great, use it. But if you, are, if, you, if you have a solution in hand like AI, and if you're looking for a problem, uh, it, you always, always end up in a disaster. So I had that philosophy in my mind. Um, and I think I did a lot of critical thinking about AI and how it plays a role in society. So people think AI technology, or for that matter, is just in isolation. Technology never works in isolation. Technology has a user to it, and the user has a society behind it. And there's a social connection between those users and the technology. And not, the so, not just the social connection between user and technology, there's a social connection between different users using the same technology. So you start thinking about this technology, we like AI, and you look at these connections and you go, you can't ignore them. You can't design technology without understanding those social constructs that it exists within. Um, and that sort of uh, really made me think about it more and how it then broadly applies to what we do. So think about AI, right? If, if, if I start with an example, mm -hmm. if AI application comes in and it, it gives you a particular solution, that solution inherently is gonna make things more efficient and, and more productive, which means you need, you need less, um, uh, less amount of staff doing that job because now a, a machine is doing the job. Now that's fine because people say, oh, they'll get a job somewhere else, but they're not gonna get a job somewhere else because the job market doesn't work like that. You yeah. have to upskill those people over a period of time for them to get new jobs. So now you're thinking about education policy. So you think about AI, you think about the economic policy and the job policy. And now you've got to think about education policy because for them to upskill, the market has to have the need for them to be upskilling. So the education policy comes into play. So when you think about the education policy, the whole uh, gamut of things comes into play. So the government comes into play because now you've got to regulate these things. So AI, when you think about it, it's not only the technology, you have the education, you have jobs, you have economic growth, you have government regulation, and all sorts of things coming together. And then you put in that mix society like Australia, where uh, it's a multicultural society. So who you design the AI for? Do you design it for the majority of the population, which is um, Anglo-Saxon, or do you, de do you design it for a minority of population, uh, which could be Aboriginal indigenous people? So then you think about AI and go, who are we designing this for? Mm -hmm. How does the design look like? And how it is playing a role in society? That made me a lot of passionate about that. And at the exact time, Genevieve Bell, uh, who is the director of the AI, uh, gave a talk at the National uh, Library. Um, and she started talking about these things. And I just fell in, like, I became a big fan of her because she was talking the exact same language I was thinking in my head. 
and 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 at that point she um, she said that she's designing a pioneering course in uh, applied cybernetics, uh, looking at how you ethically um, unbi in an unbiased way and in an inclusive way um, scale AI to achieve what it needs to achieve. So. I decided to put my hand up because that's something that I couldn't have missed for, for the world. And luckily enough, my office again, uh, which supported me back in MasterChef and supported me again this time around as well. So I was lucky to have that. That's so amazing, man. It's, in fact, you create that opportunity and it's so important that you say that you are actually falling in love with somebody who's having a similar thought. In fact, I was actually looking at the boy lectures in 2017 from Genevieve Bell and I, I fell in love with the amount of information, the amount of considerations that she is making. And I, I'm always uh, following 3AI from then. And even if you remember, I was always constantly getting in touch with you in the last one year or so, just so that I can learn. <laughs> so <laughs> coming back to the first cohort of 16 wonderful, wonderful people, you know, coming out of the scores, I'm, I'm extremely curious to know, uh, they, they actually come from different backgrounds, as you know, somebody who's an anthropologist, policymaker, the digital transformation experts, lawyers, and whatnot. So uh, how was it like for you to collaborate with such diverse set of uh, experienced people, uh, you know, be it uh, pre-COVID world and post-COVID world? And what was your key learning from those? Um Genevieve was very passionate about making sure that a course that she designs has all the diversity from every field that uh, AI is going to play a massive role in. Hence, we had people from anthropology, people from um, policy, government policy, people from uh, IT, people from theater. Uh, there was a person who had done masters in uh, visual arts. Um, there, there was one person who was a social, uh, a social worker. There was one person who was a psychologist. Uh, there was there were people from a, 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 a mathematician, so there were lots of people in that cohort, and there was a 50-50 ratio of male and female. So it was just a wonderful uh, group of people. Uh, it's important to have that diversity because when you have the diversity of not just um, age and not just the uh, the, the uh, per personalities, but mm -hmm. diversity of topics that you talk about. So in terms of age, we had we had people from about 28 to about 55. So that was, a, a, again, a range of uh, different life skills and experiences that, that the diversity brought. So that made uh, the conversations really interesting because everybody comes in from all different angles, right? Um, a person who was uh, from a diplomatic uh, background, he came in from an angle which was completely different from my angle, which was IP and how IP works. And, uh, and to, to a person who came from creative arts, uh, which was completely different to mine because I'm a very analytical person and they're very lateral thinkers. So you have those conversations and it makes you uh, and your thinking richer uh, because you would otherwise never get to hear those conversations. And we were all talking about AI, but from a very different angle. So it gave me uh, uh, amazing insights into how the world will work in future because all we thought about was how is this going to make applicable to in, in future in five years, 10 years, 20 years down the track, how is it going to get scaled up? So there were really great uh, insights from that. And uh, one of the critical skills I learned was sit back and listen, listen, listen. Uh, you do not come to a conclusion until you listen to almost every person in the room and then you basically sit back and then digest all that information and then you come to a conclusion. So that's very helpful in your any day-to-day -day life or my professional life or at home. You have to listen. You have to listen to everybody in the room and then come to a conclusion. So this was a really great experience. And 
uh, pre-COVID, we were lucky actually that uh, our course, like the, first, the, the entire duration of the academic studies finished before COVID hit. Um, there was a bit of um, overlap between our, our capstone projects and COVID, but apart from that, um, everything, the, the teaching part was done before COVID hit, so we were lucky. The second cohort, which is go undergoing the training now, mm -hmm. uh, is, is now in that uh, digital environment where they're working from home or, and, and attending lectures from home. So it's really difficult for them and I feel for them. Uh, but uh, we were lucky enough to have that. And I did, a, as I said, my capstone. I did my capstone in Western Australia for a mining company. Uh, looking at their autonomous operations and how to make them efficient, how to make them effective. Uh, so that was a really good experience as well. Uh, in terms of the course in detail as such, uh, Rishi, how would you unpack that? You know, I just wanted to uh, live that one year of what you have lived in this two minutes to three minutes. Uh, you talk about technology, talk about process, talk about policy applications and whatnot. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? Uh, so unpack is a really great word because uh, we actually did that in the first semester. We unpacked everything. We took uh, the concept of AI and we mm -hmm. broke it down into its components. Components like sensors, components like data, components like algorithm, components like um, actuators. All these little things that actually make it AI. AI is a bundle of all the components that come together to make it AI, right? It's not something that just you can buy off the shelf. You've got to put it together. So we actually broke it down into its components and, and, and looked at each component and how it plays a role in AI and then explored that. So that was the first semester. And second semester was bringing it all together into AI again and then looking at how do those all the individual components now play a massive role when it becomes a system. And we call it a cyber physical system because it's, it's cyber because it's in the cloud or it's in, in digital world, but it's a physical system because it's actually making an impact on a physical world. So hence it's a cyber physical system. So then we brought it back in the second semester as a cyber physical system. So really uh, interesting insights you get when you start thinking systems thinking, we call it systems thinking, because now you're thinking about it as a technology system, you're thinking about it as an economic system, you're thinking about it as a social system. And then you come it from all different angles to see how it's going to impact the society in general, uh, from the economic perspective, from policy perspective, from regulation, from social network connections. And, and that was really incredible. So a couple of projects I did, which will probably uh, the listeners would find uh, interesting. The first semester I did a project. Um, we had to use a very loose concept of AI to build something small. So it wasn't really a massive project, a very small project. Um, so what I did was I, uh, obviously everybody has a smartwatch. So I wore a smartwatch for uh, approximately eight weeks and I collected all my health data. I collected data like my blood pressure, my heart rate, my sleeping pattern and all those things that the smartwatch collects. I also got some qualitative information about um, my sleeping pattern, what food I'm eating, if I'm drinking anything or not. All those things I, 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 I um, collected. And then at the end of the semester, I put it together and I built what I called a virtual doctor. Mm -hmm. So what the virtual doctor would do, I, I built an algorithm um, behind. And again, I had no idea about coding, so I had to learn coding from scratch. I built, I, I built a code in Python and I, I had some algorithm in it to, uh, for, for the uh, algorithm to go and look into my data and analyze my data to see if I was healthy. Um, and if I was healthy, and I, I go to the gym every day, so that's something that you should know. I go to the gym every day. So if I was healthy, the, uh, the algorithm will trigger an alarm on my phone, uh, and it will wake me up at 6 in the morning to go to the gym. But if the data suggested that I wasn't healthy, 
the algorithm would not trigger that alarm. In fact, it would send a text message silently on my phone saying the reason I didn't wake you up is because you are not healthy and you shouldn't go to the gym. And, and by the way, I've also sent a message to your manager that, you, that telling them you won't be coming to the office today. So I sort of built a very small wow. system. Isn't it dangerous? <laughs> Isn't it dangerous when you, are, when you think about uh, sending a message to your manager when you have got a key deliverable for that particular day? <laughs> it is. But again, that's the beauty of it, right? You, yeah. you, you build something without actually thinking about the implications. Uh, what happens at workplace if I don't just show up? If AI decides that I shouldn't go, what happens yeah. to the workplace? What happens to my deliverables? What happens to my staff? How do they know? So this, these are the questions that you ask when you build an AI. Yeah, Absolutely. the business so continuity you, automatically kicks in. Yeah. <laughs> so I think as uh, Rishi, you said, you need to look at the full ecosystem. You can't build solution in isolation. That's right, exactly right. You have to look at the entire system that the AI is going to play a role in. And what support did you get? You know, you said coding and programming was new to you. What support did you get in that front? And at the same time, what support did you get from the, the big players like Microsoft, the Googles, the Amazons and whatnot? I believe uh, you know, they've, they've got some um, uh, helping going as far as this particular course is concerned. So uh, luckily for us, Microsoft, I think Microsoft Macquarie and um, uh, KPMG were our key partners uh, going into the course. Uh, and, they, and they are interested in how AI plays a massive role in society as well. So that, that's why they funded the uh, first year of the course, and I think they're funding the second year as well. Uh, and what support we got from, we had amazing staff at, at uh, 3AI. We had staff who were anthropologists. We had staff who were technical experts. We had staff, access to staff from ANU, um, who actually were coders and who were um, um, uh, experts in AI and experts in robotics. Uh, so we did have access to all those people. So if we were struggling, um, we could always go to them and go, hey, I'm struggling with this particular code. Uh, can you help me out? But more importantly, uh, the onus was on us to go and explore, because if you probably know this, uh, a lot of AI and a lot of coding now happens in open source. Um, there's a lot of information available on GitHub. You can download for free and you can start playing with the code straight away. So that was really helpful with open source. And I can't believe I'm saying that because I'm a person from IP background <laughs> saying open source is great. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's a conflict of interest sort of a thing for me. But uh, last year it was interesting that uh, those open source things, uh, people are actually putting a lot of effort in putting those codes on, on GitHub and they were really useful. But uh, you have to tailor make them for your applications. And that's when I needed help from staff and from everybody there at 3AI to make sure that I can apply it for my particular solution. That's great. Uh, Rishi, this is no brainer that the decision maker of the organizations must be guided well by technology and business experts. Now this comes to a clear influencing capability to achieve organization outcome. What do you think are the challenges today with the decision makers? For example, when uh, you know, people are writing checks and not having enough appreciation for technology, how do you think you can influence them? Um, so one, one of our jobs, we were called disease vectors, and it's totally a wrong term now you, uh, in the COVID uh, sense, but a, a disease vector is something that uh, carries the thought um, and carries the, the philosophy of what we learned last year and, and spreads into society. So not really applicable with the COVID, but um, what our job is essentially is to influence those leadership positions, influence the policymakers, influence government to think about these things, because I understand everybody has expertise in a particular uh, field. So even the leaders will have expertise in their field, but they won't understand how technology impacts their staff or technology impacts the society or policy in general. So 
our job is to make them uh, aware of that. And one of the critical skills we learn um, in, the, in the sense uh, was asking lots of questions. I don't have all the answers. I will never have all the answers because my expertise in polymer chemistry, my expertise is in management of people. I don't understand, well, I don't have expertise in, for example, education policy. Mm -hmm. I don't have expertise in, for example, infrastructure policy. So my job is to ask them questions to get answers out of them as an applied cybernetics practitioner, because I have the knowledge and I have the skills to interrogate an AI solution to see where it impacts. So this is where uh, people like me, who the 16 others um, come in, is we go in organizations and we ask the targeted questions for them to understand the impacts and for them to come up with solutions mm -hmm. because they will have the expertise, the staff will have the expertise. So this is where uh, the leader, this is where we see our, our um, usefulness in government or even in, for that matter, in private sector when people are developing AI solutions, you ask them the questions, what's the problem? What you're trying to solve? And how is this AI gonna help you solve that problem? And when you, when you ask that fundamental question uh, and then use the three AI framework, the three AI framework is the three A's and three I's. So the first A is autonomy, agency, assurance. So auto autonomy of AI, agency of AI, and assurance of AI. And then the, the I's are intent, uh, indicators, so intent of AI, so which is what I asked, why, why are we doing this? Indicators of AI and uh, interfaces, which is your screens, which is your devices, et cetera. So those three A's and those three I's, we can ask those targeted questions to get answers from units. That's super amazing. And your passion is infectious. And the way that you're answering is clearly something uh, that people should note. And, and thank you. Thank you so much. And how, how do you think people can reach out to you? They can reach out to me through LinkedIn. I've got a LinkedIn profile, which is up to date. So they can reach out through LinkedIn. Um, and anytime, get in touch with me. I'm happy to share my thoughts, share my views. Uh, as I said, I, I, I'm learning as well. I continue to learn uh, every day. Uh, I'm not an expert in, in, in AI, but what I do is uh, collectively we can achieve it because expertise are with, with people and I can help them bring out those expertise and, and answer questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Rishi. No, thank you for having me. It was wonderful to chat to you guys. And it's wonderful to relive your entire life in about 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you. Uh, in our show buddy thank you so much well done thank you thanks for tuning in my friends we have got thousands of people listening to this podcast and wanted to thank you all for the love and encouragement so far some of you have reached out personally to us and thanked as well for producing great quality content it would be awesome if you like and follow our linkedin page inspiring ideas and please don't forget to hit the subscribe button from where you are listening we are across all the key podcast channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. We will see you with another great episode next week. Thank you so much.